I was uh, driving to church this morning, and I was driving south on the 125, and uh, I live in Santee, so I got on the 125 right at the, right at the beginning. Oh, hold on, sorry. There we go. <clears throat> and as we're driving up, as we're driving up the, the hill, I said to Josiah, I was riding with Josiah, and he was driving, and I was in the passenger seat, I said, well, there's something on the road. And there's this stuff scattered all across the freeway. And as we got closer, there was like dozens and dozens of pairs of shoes scattered all across the freeway. It was super weird. And so I said to him, wow, someone was running really fast. <laughs> Man, the jokes don't get any better. If you came for a comedy show, the door's back that way because it's going to be rough. Last night in, um, in Santee, in our area of Santee where we live, uh, there was a planned power outage. And about 10 o'clock, they said, we're going to turn your power. SDG was doing some repairs or some maintenance or something. They're going to turn your power off at 10, and it'll be on again by 6 in the morning. And so every night before I go to bed, I take our little dog Peaches out and walk her around to make, she, make sure she's, she's good. She goes to the bathroom before the night, and we're walking around, and it's like four or five minutes after 10 and the lights are still on. And um, right outside our front door, there's our, our community's swimming pool. And there's a guy who just gotten out of the pool and he's in the little outdoor shower spot and I can hear the water running. And, and then all of a sudden, it, it, honestly, it was just, it was super weird. You could hear this, like that's honestly, you know the sound that it makes on TV? That's the sound that it made. It was almost like this click and you could hear the power just stop. And everything went quiet. And then the guy in the shower goes, Hey, did we not pay our bill? <laughs> I'm the only one outside. 100% ignored him. <laughs> like, like that, that was such a bad dad joke, I'm not even responding. <laughs> oh, so I get, you know, when you moan at my dad jokes, I understand. I'm there, I'm there with you. On the inside, I'm moaning too. Who remembers the, 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 the art craze of the 90s called the magic eye? You guys remember this? There's three of us. It's okay. It, no one else remembers. I'm going to show you because it looks like this. I think of our, there. So now focus really hard as I talk about this and tell me if you can see because that's art, but there's something behind there that you can see if you focus really hard and you kind of go cross-eyed a little bit and you look beyond the image. There's something in the image beyond the image. This one, it might be tough from down there. I had fun this week staring, just... There's some staring at my computer. People would walk into my office. I'm like, I'm looking at a magic eye. So that's, that's actually fish swimming, swimming around the ocean, and there's a few starfish in there. Go to the next one. This one's actually funny. This, I know you can't see it. That's why you're not laughing. But this is an elephant and a donkey with boxing gloves on, and they're fighting. This is a, this is a political cartoon. It could, it could look like a little bit like Where's Waldo? You know, the, 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 the magic eye for me, this sums up the book of Revelation, right? Because we see a bunch of stuff. So when you read, we read through the book of Revelation, we see stuff and thrones and scrolls and trumpets and bulls and horns and, and beasts and, and all these wild things. So we see stuff, but we got to see beyond the stuff to see what's really there. Because there's something beyond the obvious, beyond the obvious prophetic imagery and we got to see what's kind of behind. It's a different, it takes a different perspective to see behind and beyond the obvious. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Revelation. It's the very last book in your Bible. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 today. 
And if you, if you have a way to take notes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. Get ready. Be prepared to take notes. And so if you didn't bring a pen and a piece of paper, open up your note app on your phone. Because we're not, like, I'm going to talk about stuff that, and it's not going to show up on the screen just because there's, there's so much here. And we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a war trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So this is Jesus, and he's speaking to John. John is the writer of this book. It's, it's a book, but it's, it's actually a letter. He's, you know, um, he, he wrote a, this letter to seven churches. And so if you were with us last week, Renee talked about the seven churches and the message to the seven churches. And so this is a letter written by John to seven churches. And Jesus says to John, he's extending this invitation to enter the realm of heaven and see what must happen, or some translations will say what must take place. Jesus isn't, isn't showing John what's just going to happen or what will happen. There's different language here. He says what must take place. I'm going to show you what must happen. And in the original language of the Greek, this phrase is also interpreted as, as ordained or as God orchestrated. The whole history of humanity is orchestrated by God. Now listen, this is not, to, don't, we can't carry this thought too far because if you carry the thought too far, the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're like, oh, well, my life is preordained. I don't have any actual choices. I'm just following out a pre-written script for my life. And that's not the case. We have free will. We are totally free to make whatever choice that we want in life. It's not predetermined, preordained, and preorchestrated for us. But in the midst of our free will and in the midst of our free choices, God is guiding humanity to a, a culmination or a conclusion of human history. So what is to happen is not by chance or by happenstance, but rather it is by the supreme will of God. Listen, make no mistake, Almighty God is in charge. So John looks and he sees a door standing open. And this is access to heaven and to heaven's realms. The door was open for John, and I want you to know today that the door still stands open. He didn't say, I see a door and it was opening, or a door that was swinging open and closed, but he said, I see, I, I see a door standing open, remaining open. This door never closed. And I want you to, and in classic Revelation form, the door really isn't a door. The door is a person, and his name is Jesus, right? Because Jesus said when he walked the earth in John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. See, he's our access point to the Father. He is, he is our way into heaven, and no one gets to the Father. No one gets into heaven or, or to, to, to the heavenly realms or to relationship with the Father unless they go through the door, and the door is Jesus. There is one way. There is one door, and his name is Jesus. You can't go around the door. You have to go through the door. The door is open for everyone and anyone, but you must go that way. See, you and I 
have access to heaven and heavenly realms through Jesus. And I want you to hear today the very, very same words that John heard. Come up here. There's an invitation for us to come up here. So at once, John is, is swept up in the Spirit and he's having this, this, this open vision. And an open vision is, is, is like when you're in the natural, but suddenly you see things that, that are in the, in the Spirit. It's just this movie's playing out in front of him and that's what, what, what's happening to John. And he sees the, the throne room of heaven and, and family, this is where things get wild. From this point forward into the book of, to the end of the book of Revelation, like buckle up your seatbelts because it gets wild. So let's look at same chapter, Revelation 4, and we're going to read uh, starting in verse, verse 3. So John, let me set this up. John sees someone sitting on the throne, and this, this is God. This is the Father God. And he says, his appearance was like sparkling crystal and glowing like carnelian, uh, like a carnelian gemstone, which is like a fiery gemstone. And surrounding the throne was a circle of green light, like an emerald rainbow. Encircling the great throne were 24 thrones with elders, glistening in white garments seated upon them, each wearing a golden crown of victory. And pulsing from the throne were blinding flashes of light, crashes of thunder, and voices. And burning before the throne were, the, were seven blazing torches, which represent the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was, there was pavement like a crystal sea of glass. Around the throne and on each side stood four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature resembled a lion, the second an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. And each of the four living creatures had six wings full of eyes uh, all around and under their wings. <laughs> John's trying to describe for us what is absolutely indescribable. Like, how do you describe something that has no human words for what you're seeing? This is what we're reading. And what he's seeing is the same, is the same thing that, that the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, they all saw the same or very similar things, and we can read them in, in, in their books and then, then John takes note of the worship. See, he describes the scene and what he's seeing, and then he notices the worship. And the four living creatures are crying out night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who, or who was, and who is, and who is to come. And then whenever the, the four living creatures cry out like this, the 24 elders that are circling the throne, they stand up and then they fall down and they put their crowns down on the ground before the one who sits on the throne. And then they start crying out, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they exist and were created and brought into being. And this goes on continuously. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. This is happening over and over. The living creatures are created angelic beings that both Isaiah and Ezekiel saw. But this is the very first mention of these 24 elders in the book of Bible. John is the only one to mention them. And there are two thoughts about who these elders are. One school of thought says that the elders are also angelic beings. And then another main school of thought, and that, 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 that they're angels is not, not really commonly held to. But the more common belief by most scholars and theologians, which, which I agree, and I'm not stating that I'm a, I'm a theologian or a scholar, but this is, this is what I believe, is that they, they actually represent the church. 
See, they are dressed in white, which symbolizes purity and holiness, which only comes through salvation in Jesus. And they're wearing crowns on their heads, these golden crowns of victory. Now, there are many references in Scripture to crowns being given as rewards to those that, that follow Jesus and surrender their lives to him. And the, and the rewards are for how we live our lives now before we take our final breath here and our first breath there. And we're rewarded for how we live and what we do with what Jesus has given us. And we're given crowns. And this is why many believe that these 24 elders in some way represent the church. So this incredible worship scene is happening in the throne room where angelic beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And elders are responding, worthy, 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 as they fall down and they place their, their rewards for a life well lived, a life surrendered to Jesus, these crowns at the feet of God Almighty who's sitting on the throne. And I want you to, to notice that the worship of the redeemed, the elders, surpasses the worship of the angelic. See, only us, only people, not angels, only people can experience redemption through the blood of Jesus. See, angels, these, these four living beings, they were created to worship. This was their, 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 their purpose. But you and I, we have choice. The four living creatures have no choice. This is just what they do. We have choice. The worship of the angelic should never eclipse that of the redeemed because it's the redeemed who recognize the worth of God and we choose to love him and to worship him. See, like, like the, the four living, notice the, the language, the four living creatures cried out, holy, holy, holy. They're experiencing the holiness of God. We can experience that too. We can also experience the holiness of God and, and, and we cry out and we sing out, holy are you God, holy are you. But the four living creatures never cry out, worthy, worthy, worthy. It's the 24 elders. See, they cannot experience the redemption of God like we can, being purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. And that's why we cry out, worthy, worthy are you, God. And we fall at his feet. See, we, we will one day be rewarded for how we live our lives here on the earth. And we will also be so overwhelmed at the worthiness of God, at that the rewards, the crowns that he places on our heads. We, we take off and we fall down and we put them at his feet and we say, you are worthy of it all. Everything that I went through, every trial, every difficulty, every struggle, every, every overcome temptation, you were worthy of it all. So yes, we'll be rewarded, but we'll also place those crowns at his feet and say, Jesus, it was worth it. Because there's no other response, but worthy are you, our Lord and our God. And that's chapter four. Whew. Chapter five, the scene shifts a little bit. And now John sees, he sees this. The one seated on the throne was holding in his right hand an unopened scroll with writing on the inside and on the outside, and it was sealed with seven seals, these seven divine holy wax seals. And then I saw an incredibly powerful angel proclaiming with, with a great loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seven seals? But no person could be found, living or dead in all of creation. No one was worthy to open the scroll and read its contents. So John, John says, I broke down. 
and I was weeping with intense sorrow because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll and read what it said. Being worthy to open the scroll means, means that having the authority or the right or the position or rank to open the seals, right? Like in a, in a monarchy, the king would write something down and then they would seal it with this wax. They would, they would like melt wax and he had a signet ring and he would seal it. And there were only specific people that could break that seal. And no one is found in all of creation. No one living, no one dead. No prophet, no apostle, not Moses, not Elijah, not your pastor, not anyone. And John is just crushed and he's overcome with sorrow and weeping until one of the elders says, stop crying, which side note is really the best way to get anybody to stop crying. If they're in the midst of heavy sorrow and weeping, you just say in a loud voice, stop crying. And they stop. This is not true. Don't ever tell your kids that. They don't stop. I've, I've tried. And now look at chapter 5, verses, uh, starting at verse 5. It says, Look, the mighty lion of Judah's tribe, the root of David, he has conquered, and he is the worthy one who can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Then I saw a young lamb standing before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. He appeared to have been slaughtered, but was now alive. And I saw the young lamb approach the throne and take the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat there. Okay. John hears one thing, and then he sees something else. Like, we, this, this is important. We can't just read over this real quick, right? He, he, heard, he heard one of the elders say, Look, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is overcome. That's what he hears. But then he looks, and he sees something completely different. He sees a lamb who is slain. <laughs> okay, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are classic Old Testament references to the Messiah. See, the, the, they, they believed that the Messiah was coming in this great military conquest and was going to overthrow all of Israel's enemies. And then Israel and the Israelites would, would rule the, the earth and, and, the, and the kingdom. And that's what was happening. So the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, think of David who was this incredible warrior. He killed Goliath. He slayed his, his ten thousands. He's never defeated. He never lost a battle. This is, this is what, what those terms mean, what they're referring to. They're images of a strong, mighty warrior who has slain his enemies. And this is what John hears. But he sees the lamb who was slain. A lamb looking like it was slain, but yet it was still alive. And so, so John, what John sees is, is a reference to the Passover lamb in, in, in the Old Testament law that Moses gave. And in, in the Passover lamb, they would take it and they would stretch its neck out and they would cut its throat and let its blood run out. And that blood washed away, you know, all, the, all their iniquities, all their sins, all their mistakes, all the ways that they had wronged God. It washed that away. And so John sees this young lamb with its throat cut, but yet it's still alive. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ. He does not see some, some military lion king, but rather the slain lamb of God. Now this is, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, this is absolutely crucial to understanding the book of Revelation. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and God's promise of a victorious and glorious kingdom, one that is to come. And God's kingdom was inaugurated. It was started through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus overcomes and conquers his enemies, not by killing them, but by dying for them 
as the true Passover lamb. So that we have to answer the, the unasked question, who are his enemies? We are. Romans 5 and verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Jesus conquers his enemies by dying for them and creating a way for us, for you and I, to transition from enemy to friend, from outcast to family, from adversary to his bride. See, this is, this is what Jesus did for us. We, we were his enemies. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, then you're his enemy. If you have surrendered your life to him, then you're his friend. L listen, there's, there's no other choices. There's no in-between. You can't stand in the middle and be like, ah, the middle is, is enemy. It's, it's kind of that, that classic, if you're with me, you're with me. If you're not, you're against me. So as we make our way through the book of Revelation, we have to keep in mind, we have to remember that Jesus is the slain lamb who conquered by sacrificing his life in the ultimate demonstration of love for us, for his enemies. Now, let, let, me, let me go back a little bit and ask this question. What is the difference between what God says and what we see? I had this question rolling around in my spirit all, all week long. And I asked, I asked Oscar one day, he was, he, he was here during the, during the day, and I asked him this question because it was something that Holy Spirit just kind of prompted me. See, John heard one thing but saw another. And, and it made me think back to times in my life where I've been given prophetic words, where people have spoken to me and said, hey, I, I believe that the Lord is saying this to you. And what, what I heard didn't line up with what I saw in my life at that time, in that moment. Maybe you're, maybe you're here and you've had, you've had a similar experience where someone, someone says to you, oh, I see you as, you know, as, as a mighty man. I see you as a, as, as a mighty woman of God, a strong warrior, full of faith. And then you take a step back and you look at your life and you're like, that is not what I see at all. I see someone who, who struggles with fear. I see someone who struggles with doubt. I see someone who struggles and stumbles and has fallen. And I get back up and I fall down again. I, I don't see mighty warrior. I don't see man of faith. I don't see man of God. I, I, that's, that's not what I see. There, there have been many prophetic words that have been spoken over our church. Prophetic words of a, of a full building, of people lined up to receive miracles, healings from the Lord. Prophetic words of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God being poured out in this place and then actually do it, like flowing in this place and out the back doors and out the doors to the street and then down the street. So many prophetic words and we look around and I look around and that's, that's not what I see. So what's the difference between what God says and what we see? It's his perspective. See, our interpretation of what we see must be subject to the Father's perspective. It's not that we're seeing wrong. It's understanding his perspective. It's seeing things from his vantage point. Like, often, often, like this is, again, uh, again, 
come up here. Oftentimes, we, we all, honestly, we need to take a step up and we need, to, we need to ask God, I need to see things from your vantage point, how you see things from your throne in heaven. I need to see what you see because what I see, I see brokenness, I see doubt, I see failure. How can you say mighty warrior? I need to see things from your vantage point your perspective. There's this story in, in, in Judges. I think it's Judges chapter six. It's the story of Gideon. And Gideon was a scaredy cat. The, the, like the whole, the entire nation of Israel is overrun by the Midianites and, and they're stealing their food and burning their crops. And they're just, the, the, the Israelites are heavily oppressed. And here's, here's Gideon. He's hiding in a wine press, which is in the ground and he's threshing wheat. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press, right? This is not how this happens. And so he's down there and all of a sudden this angel shows up and he says, mighty warrior, Gideon, down in a hole in the ground, threshing wheat. He's afraid for his life and he's trying to just hold on to a few scraps of food. And this angel calls out, mighty warrior. By the end of Gideon's story, through an incredible miraculous battle, Gideon overthrows the Midianites and frees the Israelites. Guy hiding in the ground, in the ground on a hole in the ground, afraid for his life, mighty warrior. We need to see things from his perspective because God sees things outside of time. He's not bound by time like what we are. And so he might, you're looking at your life in, in like honestly, oh, we have that moment and then it's gone. Now I only have a memory of that moment because the moment is gone, right? But, but God sees outside of that and he's like, ah, oh, I see the end. There's a mighty warrior here. I see the end. There's a woman full of faith here. I see the end. And, and what, when I see the end, I'm declaring it right here and right now. So you hear one thing, but you see something else. And when you see something different than what you hear, you need to say, Father, I need to see things from your perspective because I want to live from that perspective. Renee ended her message last week by talking about two questions that John insinuates. He doesn't actually write in the letter, but he insinuates. And then, you know, from verses four to the end, he, he proceeds to answer these two insinuated questions. Number one, will God's people endure to the end? And number two, why is faithfulness described as conquering? Faithfulness is described as conquering because that's the perspective of the Father. See, we conquer through faithfulness to Jesus. We hear conquer, but we see slain. We see the slain lamb of God, but God sees a victorious conqueror. See, it's because of the resurrection. Jesus lives today. He's not dead. He's alive. His death, and because he's alive, his death was not a defeat, but it was his great conquest over Satan, over evil, over sin, over death, over hell in the grave. Look at verse six in chapter five. It says he, speaking of the lamb, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the ends of the earth. And I saw the young lamb approach the throne and take the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat there. And when the 24 elders and the four living creatures saw the lamb had taken the scroll, they fell face down at the feet of the lamb and worshiped him. <laughs> I can't, can't like, so, like we, we read it, but sometimes we need to put ourselves in it, right? Can you, can you just put yourself in John's sandals in that, in that moment? <laughs> he sees a lamb looking like it was slain, but it's alive. And now suddenly the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns. <laughs> I feel like there was a lot of processing that John had to do when he come out of this, you know, this, this open vision. 
Horns in the Bible are symbolic of authority and of strength and of power. And here the lamb had seven horns. Having seven horns represents uh, having like absolute or total authority and power because seven is the number of perfection. So what John is seeing is prophetic symbolism showing that Jesus has perfect or total power and authority. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Who's thankful that sometimes the Bible just tells you what the prophetic meaning of something is? Because literally at the beginning of chapter four, there were seven blazing torches around the throne room and they said, that's the seven spirits of God. And now suddenly the lamb has seven eyes and I'm so thankful that the, <laughs> that the father saw it fit to say, okay, guys, that's the seven spirits of God again. So the, the Bible clearly tells us we don't have to wonder what the seven eyes are. Now, the seven spirits of God are listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and these are what they are. It's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11 is this prophetic chapter descriptive of the coming Messiah, which we now understand is Jesus. So Jesus has the, the, the seven spirits of the Lord in him. So we have to grapple and, and grasp a few things here. We serve one God, not three. Okay, so we're seeing the one who sits on the throne right? We're seeing the lamb who was slain, and now we have the seven spirits of God, which are really one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I told you to buckle up your seatbelt. This was going to get wild. So, and they are not, not, they're not one, two, three, or, or not one, two, seven. They're uh, one, two, three, but one. I know it doesn't make sense, and we really don't have language for it, so we made up a word, uh, called the Trinity, which you don't find in the Bible, but it's descriptive of what, we, of what we see. We serve one God. There's three in one. It's one God, okay? So the rest of chapter five describes another incredible scene of worship in the throne room where we see the lamb alongside the one who sits on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is Father God, and together they are worshiped. And first, in this final great worship scene, John sees the four living creatures and the elders worshiping and singing praise to the lamb. That's what he sees. And then, he, then, it, then it escalates. And then it says that it, it includes angels. And you know, your, your uh, translation might say myriads upon myriads, which really means uh, too many to number. You can't count the, the amount of angels. So you have the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They start in this worship and then it escalates. And all the angels, too numerous to count, are now in, involved in this worship. And then it escalates again to where we read this in verse 13. Then every living being joined the angelic choir. Every living being. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea, and everything in them were worshiping with one voice, saying, Praise, honor, glory, and dominion to God enthroned and to Christ the Lamb forever and ever. What, what John is seeing in this moment is what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 2, where he's writing about, about, about Jesus, and he says, Jesus was given the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what John is seeing. Like, there's, there's going to come a moment where everyone, say everyone, everyone will worship. Above the earth, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that's in it. This incredible scene of worship where all, literally, literally all of creation is worshiping. 
Wow. Okay. And that's the end of chapter five. Uh, Josiah, do you want to come or someone come and play a little music for me? Because I want to make sure you catch this. There is like, we, we just, we saw a lot. We heard a lot. We kind of deciphered some of the prophetic, uh, you know, imagery. But now we've got to answer the question, okay, what do I do with all of this? How does this apply to my life on, you know, what is it like July the 17th, 16th? I, I'm already in the future. July the 16th, 2023. How does this all apply to my life? I want to give you four things that I want you to go home with today. Number one, I want, allow the revelation of worship from around the throne room to draw you into deeper realms of worshiping Jesus. So we see these scenes of worship that, that John saw. And these, the, 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 I these, found these sorry, Siri. <laughs> and we see these scenes of worship, and they, 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 they need to inspire us to go deeper into the deeper depths of worship than we've ever been before. Number two. We need to understand that Jesus alone has the authority to guide history to its completion. And he is worthy of our worship. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're listening to all of this and you think, I'm a mess. I am broke, busted, disgusted. I have messed my life up beyond repair. Listen, you are not that powerful to destroy your life so that Jesus cannot get you where he wants you to be. Because Jesus alone has the authority to guide you and all of humanity to the completion of human history. We have been won and conquered by his love. We have the opportunity, if we choose, to surrender our lives, to yield to him voluntarily and move from being an enemy to his friend. And when you're a friend of Jesus, he says, friend, I've got you. Trust me, it's going to be a process. It's not all going to be fun. It's going to be some work. There's going to be some pain, but I got you. And I'm going to get you where I want you to be. Number three, live the way of Jesus. What's the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is not military conquering of enemies but in love, giving our lives for them so that they could come to know salvation, love, righteousness, and holiness. Sometimes we make love such our ultimate goal that we water down the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God because we want people to experience his love. God doesn't need to be watered down. This doesn't mean that we, we don't take a stand for justice or righteousness. We absolutely must model and champion righteous living according to the word of God without compromise, without apology, without excuse. But we do it full of grace and truth. Which in John chapter 1, that's what John wrote. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Because if he came in all truth, it would have crushed us and killed us. 
But when you come in all grace, you water everything down. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we, followers of Jesus, we are to model this behavior. We are to give our lives for those who hate us, for those who persecute us, for those who oppose us. We are to love them and serve them all the while standing for the righteousness of God. And number four, when what God says and what we see do not appear to match, then pray to see from God's perspective because that's what we hold on to and that's what we live by. So I want to give a little bit of a, res of a response, but I want to give you some homework. Next week, Renee's going to preach from Revelation verses 6 through 9. And so your homework is to read those three chapters just because obviously, as you can tell, we don't read everything that's, that's here. There's just too much. We would be in the book of Revelation for like 18 months trying to go through it all. So a little bit of homework. Read, read Revelation 6 through 9. And then I want you to close your eyes. And I want to ask if there's anyone here that has not surrendered your life to Jesus, you have not allowed him to conquer you by his love. You haven't, as I talked about, there's only two choices, friend or enemy. You realize you, never made, you haven't made the choice to be friend, which means by default you're making the choice to be enemy. And you're not comfortable with that. In this moment, you're like, I don't like the way that that feels. I don't want to ask if there's anyone here and you would say, you know what? I want to be Jesus' friend. I want, I want to receive salvation and forgiveness by his love and I want him to transform my life. I want to give my entire life to him. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to be his friend today. I'm not, but I want to be. And the last response that I have, I want us to stand. And I want to invite you to come up here. Not here. Here. So I was praying this morning. I, I felt the last thing we were to do was to ask you to come forward. And by coming forward, it's, a, it's a, a faith step saying, Jesus, I'm coming up here. I'm stepping into heavenly realms. I want to encounter you. I want to experience you. I want to see things from your perspective. And so if you want to encounter the presence of Jesus, you want to see and encounter heavenly realms, then we're just going to take some time and we're just going to come to the front. And if you're, if you're here just press in. We may or may not come along and pray for you, but I believe that there's encounters with the presence of God that he has set up for us to step into today. Do not miss this moment's open door. The door doesn't close, but this moment, in a moment, will be gone. And so if you want to encounter the presence of God in a new way, fresh way, then I'm going to ask you to come, and Ryan's just going to play a little bit.
And we're going to spend a few minutes to pressing in. If you have to go, God bless you. We will see you next time.